Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Grand Torino. Delighted you could join me for today's um, episode of the Grand Torino. Before I get started, as I always do, please don't forget press the like button, press the subscription button, and the blue bell, and you'll be reminded of future broadcasts here on the Grand Torino. Now, without further without further ado, and without eating in too much of our time, I want to introduce our, my next two guests, Mr. John Waters and Dr. E. Michael Jones. Gentlemen, how are you, sir? Good. Hello, Will. How are you? Great to see you again. Okay, everybody, you're, uh, you're waiting with anticipation and bated breath as to who is today's special guest. I will bring him in now, presently. And gentlemen, I'd like to introduce to you our very own Mr. Uh, Keith Woods. Keith, how are you, sir? Not too bad. It's great to be here. I'm a big admirer of both of these men, so I feel like I'm in the presence of giants. And me too. Me too with all three of you. Uh, in that regard, then, I just wanted to have a big welcome to Live Chat. Live Chat, thanks very much for joining us. I know we had short notice, but we're going to crack on and uh, get through today's discussion. First of all, um, I'll, after my second question, I'd like us to touch on the um, Israeli news reporting on the John Hopkins School of Pediatricians reporting that transgenderism was, in fact, child abuse. I want to post that question to uh, Dr. Jones himself in regard to Israeli news reporting on it first. But second of all, um, your last night yourself and Sticks Hexenhammer, we were t discussing the, on the pornography issue, and you have since issued or uh, offered a debate between yourself and Sticks Hexenhammer as on the, the, the usage of pornography. Would you like to uh, uh, explain to the live chat audience? Is, is that going ahead, Dr. Jones? I believe it is. <clears throat> I believe we have a set a date and we're going to have a debate. So um, it's got, it's uh, who, who would have thought that we would be talking about pornography again? This is old news. It's been old news for about 20 years now, ever since the Communications Decency Act, ever since the Internet opened up the biggest uh, pornography window in history. But uh, what ha what's happening is that people are, are, are realizing what it is. It's a form of slavery. Uh, they're addicted to it. And uh, so last month we had a group of people who just boycotted pornography spontaneously, which prompted an article in the uh, Rolling Stone uh, uh, condemning them all as anti-Semites because they're not watching pornography. There's a logic there that I could probably explicate, but I don't, I don't want to spend too much of your time here. So the, 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 the this form of control is breaking down now. And I think uh, Mr. Hexenhammer, whatever his real name is, uh, step forward to defend a, a paradigm that's going down. So I'll be happy to to debate that with him. Yeah, well, I'll just quick touch on it as well. I'll ask Keith to uh, discuss it with you just a little bit further. But also aware that Sticks Hexensammer is a self-confessed pagan. He's coming from the pagan uh, belief system. And I have one or two of my very close friends are very devout pagans and uh, would see that as a, an earlier form of Christianity, that Christianity derived some of its tenants from the pagan sun worshipping and their various tenants. But I want to put it in context to, to Keith and direct it over to both you two gentlemen, as in regards to the Groyper movement that's happening. We've all, we've just, we're just coming out of No Fap November, which been, has been a cultural success online through men, uh, younger, younger conservatives in the generation, seeing the benefits of abstinence from masturbation, but also being so clued in now uh, to the, the through the usage and the tool and the weapon that is pornography, Keith, would you like to speak on that? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think what we're seeing is, you know, 
like the 1960s, you have this great youth revolt against the conservative establishment. But now it's like for my generation, you know, we're growing up and what's the establishment? The establishment are the people telling you to do drugs and watch porn and, uh, you know, do whatever you want. And so, you know, the revolt now from our generation, you see, who are people flocking to? They're flocking to someone like Jordan Peterson who gives this, though it is a very sort of milquetoast self-help version of it. It's this, uh, you know, take on responsibilities, clean your room. And you see on the distant right, people are flocking to Dr. Jones, who's given a message of responsibility and a message of logos. So, I mean, more and more you're seeing this revolt and it's quite funny watching the establishment react against it because they don't really have an answer. You know, this uh, this attitude of social libertinism. And I mean, the the attitude of people like Sticks, Hexenhammer as well now is being completely rejected. People of my generation now, the centre has pretty much collapsed. Uh, you're either, you know, you're either far right or far left. Uh, people have a strong set of beliefs, whatever side they're on, and they want to see them imposed. And all the sorts of word games of classical liberalism and libertarianism are sort of getting left behind. I mean, someone like Styx has this idea of liberty, you know, as long as there's consent involved, that that's, that makes it morally just. But I, I think people are rejecting this uh, this dead end of classical liberalism now. And you're, just, you're especially seeing that with what's going on on Twitter with this span porn thing. I think, I think one of the things that uh, the referenda in Ireland have proven is that you can engineer consent, that we are easily manipulated, especially when you have media that are as powerful as what we, what we have right now. You can basically propose uh, options. You can foreclose uh, opinions. You can promote opinions. You can engineer consent. And, and suddenly, because people agree to it, it's moral. Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. The, the whole point of seduction uh, in the past, when you didn't have big technological instruments, was that you could get someone to do something of his own free will by uh, allowing the passion to override reason. That's, that's the issue that needs to be discussed, not, not consent. Consent's something that can be manipulated at will. John? I think it's this, it's this uh, sort of fallacy that libertarians have as well, that like, if you have a complete vacuum of power that people come to it as, uh, you know, in this contractual way, you know, it's this contractual view of the state they have, and they totally ignore soft power. And it's, it's always a recognition of negative liberty, as in you can't impose this to me from the outside. But there's never a recognition of positive liberty. You know, how much liberty does someone have in the in the U.S. now that's addicted to Oxycontin because it was pushed on him by the, the Sackler family? You know, as Dr. Jones and other people are, are making more and more people realize now, liberty not, collect, uh, not connected to some kind of logos isn't really liberty at all. Uh, it's slavery. So, it's slavery. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'd like to point out here is that these people always make government the villain. So if some private entity does it, it's ipso facto good. If government does it, it's ipso facto bad. Well, that's stupid. Government is here. No matter how many abuses we have of government, government exists to protect the people from the rich and the powerful. That's the main, main reason for government. And what we have now is government as basically the tool, the proxy, the lackeys of the rich and powerful. All this happened during the rise of this libertarian ideology in our day that began with the Reagan-Thatcher era uh, and led us uh, to where we are today. 
I'd like to, uh, sorry, Dr. Jones, I'd like to get John. John, I'd like to get your thoughts yeah. on that too. Well, uh, um, it's almost 20 years now since uh, uh, I remember being involved in debates uh, I, on radio in Ireland about this, the whole question of internet freedom. And I was at that time making arguments actually related to pornography, pointing out that it was such a significant element of the internet. And asking the question, you know, if somebody opened up a newspaper with uh, pornography as the main element or one of the main elements of it, how long would that newspaper be allowed to continue at that time in our society? And the, question, the answer is it wouldn't. It would be closed down. Certainly in Ireland, uh, uh, you know, because we're, we're not just talking about kind of uh, centrefolds like in Playboy, we're talking about, you know, everything. And uh, so th there was this problem from the very beginning with the Internet that it was billed as, you know, the explosion of democracy, of free speech for everybody. Now, 20 years down the road, we, we know that this is nonsense, that it's actually uh, more controlled. It, it has this vast reach, uh, vast power, but that power has fallen into the hands of a very few people and corporations. And uh, that was that was allowed to happen by a number of factors. One was the ideology, which was protected by the idea, like in, in, in relation to transgenderism or whatever, where you were called a homophobe. In this context, you were called a Luddite, which isn't quite as bad, but it nevertheless serves to, to, to label you as somebody who's hostile to the very idea of progress in this context. And therefore, to some extent, damages your capacity to be heard. Certainly it did at that time. I think things are changing now, as, as Michael is saying. Uh, but so we had this... Uh, ideology which it, in which it was uh, virtuous to believe unequivocally in the, the model of progress which was being offered by the technology. And that fell into the barrel of the corporations in the end. And now everybody's wondering how we got here and why we didn't see it coming and why we didn't do something earlier. Well, essentially what happened was our governments were novelled. And we were anybody who raised the question of regulation of any kind was called a Luddite and worse. And uh, uh, now I'm not a huge fan of government. And, and one of the things that the insidious things we've seen about all of this is that governments, having seen how successful the corporations have been in controlling people with their this new instrument, have got in on the act. And, our, and that's where we ended up in Ireland now in the next uh, few weeks and months. We'll be dealing with this new hate speech legislation. So uh, we're in, in this odd situation that we we can't really any longer have conversations because we refuse to have this fundamental conversation at the beginning about the nature of the internet. Essentially, it was the Wild West and no attempt was made to uh, figure it out, work out what was good and what was bad about it and try to create regulation. And now well, that's, where, that's where I would, I would sidebar off with you, John, and, and I want to kind of, I understand well, I your train of thought there because I don't agree with government getting involved in regulating no. the internet i think it should well, remain be, but but the question is how then do you actually sort of safeguard society and this this question needs to be asked i'm not a huge fan of governments as i say but the problem is that what has been created is actually in many ways bad and it's not just bad in the context of pornography it's bad in the context that youtube and google control you know a huge amount of the emerging counter-counterculture, uh, the, the voice that's answering back to a lot of this stuff is controlled now by YouTube and they could therefore have the reins and all the, the buttons to stop us talking about this if they want to. So we're in this situation which only conversation will get us out of. I don't have the answer.
it's a, you know, we it's like the the old joke about you know getting lost in Kerry and they asking the man, you know, the way to to Killarney, and he says, well, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here. Well, we I wouldn't start from here, but we are here. Well, I believe I believe uh, Doctor Jones is providing us with the answer or, or the first step among the la the ladder, which is to engage and understand what logos is. And then from everybody else, use your direction and your understanding based on Logos. Dr. Jones, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, what I see is uh, this Logos book is uh, some is an optimistic book because we're, we're, we're a beleaguered minority right now. And we're trying to think, well, what can, what can we do? And we need to do this and we need to do that. But we're part of a, a, a sweep, a broad sweep of history. Uh, I, I always feel it, you know, I row on the St. Joe River and you row either upstream or you row downstream, but you're always moving one way or the other, whether you're moving or not. And that broad stream, that river is analogous to the stream of history. And that stream of history is controlled by God. And God's goal in, in, in life, in the universe is Logos. That's what it is. That's the beginning. That's the end. That's the, that's what we are here to participate in. So we're participating in a plan, and this these these things that are happening all around us are spontaneous in some sense or another, but they're part of God's plan because what you're seeing is a rise in consciousness, and that's what has to happen here. It, the the Irish were blindsided by a form of warfare that they simply did not understand. No one understood what was going on. Well, now we do. Now we do understand this, and now we do. We we I, the the review I did of John's book uh, talks about what happened in California with Brendan Ike at the same time, and what happened in the state of Indiana. We're talking about all the same time. It's the same thing. Someone gets accused of uh, homophobia, and suddenly they're out of their job, or the legislature in Indiana passes some type of bill to protect the people from this type of assault. And then they're uh, assaulted by the CEOs that descend on Indiana and tell these people they have to change their law. Well, the, the, I'm saying the government is so weak now that they, it can't defend the people it represents. And, and we, we can't be, have this kind of libertarian phobia saying the government is ipso facto bad if we expect to change anything. We have to be able to resurrect. Obviously, it begins with consciousness, but the consciousness has to reach a point where we can say, this is what you have to do. We have to resurrect the government that is supposed to de defend us and not simply represent the rich and the powerful, which is where we are today. All of these organizations, the, the big corporations, the tax-exempt foundations, and the information industry like Google, they're all more powerful than government, and Ireland and Indiana are proof of that. And we have to raise the consciousness of the people to say, no, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. With that in mind, with that in mind, Dr. Jones, and before I turn to you, Keith, um, I'll remind you that a, a four-step in this process is that we are here in Ireland. We're currently there's a protest being organised outside Dáil Éireann on December the 14th, this coming Saturday at one o'clock. It's a silent protest being organised by um, Tracy O'Mahony here, based over here in Ireland. And I encourage you and I promote this. 
your fourth step of awakening or your fourth step of consciousness uh, resistance to this agenda is to uh, show our, our your displeasure with the government's proposal of hate speech legislation, which they're trying to enact. I recently released Tracy's short video advertising why she called this um, this protest or this demonstration outside Dáil Éireann at one o'clock. And I encourage you all to uh, to attend here in Ireland. Uh, currently, oh, we seem to have lost Keith there. I'm sure he'll pop back in. Just to carry on while, while, while Keith's away there, that uh, I encourage you all to attend and do not be put off by the and I'll, and I'll throw this over to you both now as well as we as we discuss it and while we wait for Keith to rejoin us, is the proxy warriors are now, in fact, mobilizing buses. There's a list of sponsors that are, are behind a counter-protest to the anti-hate speech protest that the Patriots, I'll just describe them as, the ordinary citizens of Ireland are um, have organized. But we have the proxy warrior NGOs hiring buses to ship people in from around the country to organize a counter-demonstration under the guise of love and tolerance and everything else that goes with that. Uh, well, my, point being, my point being, John, before you jump in, that some of the sponsors, uh, that there are, some of the people that they're asking to attend is uh, asylum seekers from the Musali Asylum Centre. They've also reached out to uh, football fans in Celtic to attend. Uh, we're aware that there might be some Antifa presence there as well. So we can see all the NGOs and all their proxy soldiers and warriors and foot soldiers being asked to attend what I believe they see as the what they're calling the rise in right wing, um, right wing um, uh, ideology. That's that's the suppression of, of fascism and stuff like that. But they're in fact being sponsored. One of the sponsors, as I said, was the Asylum Center. Uh, the second one is the Irish Church, John. I spoke to you about that earlier on. And Keith, I know we lost you there, but I've just moved on to another topic. So. You do excuse me. I'm going to ask the, the gentleman just to either one of you there, John or Keith. Or... Yeah, well, I just wanted to say about that this counter protest is very interesting because it reveals something in a very clear way that we've moved into a post content phase of public discussion because clearly that counter protest is motivated not by any issue. They couldn't possibly be motivated by the idea of attacking free speech. They're simply they're motivated by they're being uh, summoned by an, uh, a, a, a process which demonizes certain people. And that's why they're someone. They're there to attack certain people who have been issued with what Roger Scruton calls spell words, whether that's racist or white supremacist or all this. So that's what's going on. This is not a battle between those who believe in free speech and those who don't believe in free speech. It's actually a, 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 a made up battle in which these so-called uh, defenders of whatever they call themselves, uh, 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 anti-hate, uh, well, they're the haters. They will be the haters. It will be a silent protest, from my understanding, which is a wonderful idea, but they will not be silent. They will be uttering slogans of hatred, as they always do. So, you know, and the other thing I'll say about this, that, that you know, uh, this is, as I keep saying, really extraordinary for Ireland that we're reaching this point where a minister for justice, minister for justice is thinking, is actually actively now moving to introduce censorship in a country which has spent 50 years, at, uh, you know, uh, demonizing the Catholic church for having allegedly censored people in the past. Our governments are now doing, and the people who actually attack the church on that basis are now the ones in the 
uh, uh, counter protests against free speech. So I say to people, you know, now, uh, what date is today? Well, they say it's the 9th of December. Yeah, what's the year? 2019. I say, no. Today's date is the 9th of December, 1983. We're on the cusp of the totalitarian nightmare that George Orwell predicted here on our doorstep in our beautiful country, Ireland. Dr. Jones. I, I agree. I agree. And the, the thing that allowed this change was the internet. As, as John pointed out, if, uh, if you wrote a letter to the editor, you had to give your name and address and phone number. As soon as the internet arrived and you had all these anonymous figures that could form a, a lynch mob uh, that would come out of nowhere. And then the internet is also being used to mobilize uh, these forces uh, because they're paid to do it. So the, 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 the point here is uh, across the board, you have to ask your politicians, who, who do you represent? Do you represent the people of Ireland or do you represent the NGOs, the big corporations and Google? Who do you, who do you represent? Who do you represent? It's very simple. Very simple question, and, and they are going to have to answer that question because we have formulated the uh, alternatives. It's that simple. Great stuff. And uh, I, I see Keith just joined us back in. Keith, I don't know if you're able to pick up any of their point, but if you have anything further, I want to, after we speak with, with Keith, I want to move on to the uh, John Hopkins article, and we'll take it from there. And Keith, your final words there? Yeah, sorry, some technical difficulties here. The internet in rural Ireland isn't fantastic. But... Uh, I just there's something you were touching on earlier talking about the the role of government and dr jones was touching on uh you know this fear libertarians have of kind of using the state and i, I was just wondering you know like ireland for the past you know 100 plus years has had two sort of center-right parties in power so I, our problems can't really be blamed on the political left uh, it's much more to do with the economic situation and our economic liberalization that brought with it uh, social libertarianism and it seems to me that that's one area the church is very silent on here is economics and like when I read something like Rerum Novarum or other uh, texts encyclicals on economics they seem to be very sound sensible almost revolutionary ideas about economics that we really need now and yet you have people like Paul Ryan in the United States that calls himself a Catholic and promotes the work of Ayn Rand and here you have uh, you know, John Waters, your colleague, uh, David Quinn, I've heard him describe himself as a Thatcherite. So, I mean, it seems to me that these two philosophies can't be wedded in any meaningful way. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Well, that the, the, the main reason we have people like Paul Ryan is uh, a, a priest by the name of Robert Sirica, who runs uh, something called the Acton Institute in Western Michigan. It's funded by Calvinist money, all of the big foundations uh, the term we use for these people is now Coke sucker. Okay. It comes from the Coke brothers foundation. They give the money and these people uh, dance to their tune. This man uh, started off as a homosexual in uh, San Francisco. He was the man who performed the first gay marriage in the United States of America. And then he became a Catholic priest. Now this man should not be ordained. This is not a valid ordination as far as I can tell. It was done under false pretenses. He was did this to infiltrate the Catholic Church, to put on a Roman collar, and then stand there and say things like, rerum novarum no longer applies. He said that in the New York Times. 
this is part of the problem here. What we have is basically the, the, the takeover of the international finance with uh, Paul Volcker becoming head of the Fed in 1978, then Reagan and Thatcher, and then Volcker and the, the, the governments of the state governments basically striking down every single usury law in the United States of America because the Fed is paying 20% on T-bills, okay? You have two parallel lines heading up here. The more uh, the, the uh, usury has concentrated wealth into fewer and fewer hands, the more you have this emphasis on sexual liberation to distract everyone from what is really going on. And Ireland is no exception to the rule. Ireland is probably a better explication of this than, than the United States of America. When the crisis came, Ireland made the wrong move. They decided to bail out the, 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 the bankers, the banks. They should have done what Iceland did, which is basically stiff the bankers. But they didn't do it because they were already softened up. And now you see, this is, this is why somebody like uh, Lloyd Blankfein supports Lloyd Blankfein, head of Goldman Sachs, supports gay marriage. Well, why does he do that? Because all of the sexual stuff is to distract you from the fact that you're, you're, you're economically miserable. And the people where it's really uh, uh, coming down, where it really is visible, is in the 20-year-olds who are burdened with debt, education debt, can't get a job, and, as, and, and, and are shunted into the pornography business to distract them from their misery or shunted into homosexuality. And as a result, they can't form families. This is the group, I think, that's going to have to provide the nucleus for this, this movement. John, yeah, that, yeah that, that, what, what I agree with both speakers there because, you know, those, those people, those young people, I mean, these are the, the, the generations like, uh, you know, my daughter's generation, she's 23. And, uh, you know, all of them seem to be caught up in this kind of, you know, identity politics thing and that this virtue has somehow become wrapped up in all of this stuff. And, and one of the things it does, it distracts them from the, from the other issues where, for which they have other explanations which are generally quite wrong, you know, as to why they don't have the means to put a roof over their heads, for example. It's, it's in part because uh, wages have been pushed down over the last 20, 30 years, while debt has, and, and also interest rates. So uh, the, the people have been offered cheap loans instead of income. And they didn't notice that that confidence trick was being pulled on them. Uh, so you have these kind of things going on. People are being misdirected. Uh, like it's like they're dealing with conjurers all the time in the shape of politicians who are giving them these progressive agendas and yet taking from them the, the only progressive thing that would matter, the right to live, the ability to live lives that were decent and good. Uh, what Keith says about uh, you know the, uh, you know I, it's a very interesting analysis of things. I mean, one of the, but there's a complicated there's two complicating factors in Ireland because because of our proportional representation system, which does a number of things. One of the things it it, it makes larger parties dependent on smaller units. Uh, so that's where a lot of the crazy stuff crept into the political system, because you find that conservative so-called conservative parties and in Ireland conservative parties are pragmatic parties. They're not particularly conservative in any ideological way. So if somebody comes to them uh, looking to do it, comes to coalition deal uh, or prepares to do a coalition deal, they're never really bothered about what they would regard as marginal stuff, for example, gay marriage or anything else like that. It doesn't really matter to them. They don't have any philosophical objection. So long as you don't touch the big business in of their operation, which is how their party gets to survive, 
and, and thrive and, and do its business. So there's all that kind of stuff going on as well. That, one, that was one of the factors, I think, that made Ireland so vulnerable, is that we had been weakened over the... We had never... Our, our, our mainstream parties had, had, as Keith said, remained these kind of stolid, uh, you know, uh, pragmatic, uh, crypto-conservative parties, but yet prepared to sell their mother if it meant uh, staying in power. And in a sense, like the Irish political system was no longer a democracy in any sense, not even in the literal sense, because the government which we now have was not elected by anybody. Its constituent elements were entirely at each other's throats during the election campaign. And that's the only test you can apply in the, in the question of democracy. Who goes to the people and says, we will do this, 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 and this, and we will not do this, 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 and this. Well, they all did what they said they had, what they had said they wouldn't do. So it's absolutely meaningless. And for the future, it means that going to the polls is entirely ridic a ridiculous exercise because they will ignore the result. That result of that last election was basically, we don't want any of you in government. That was the result. Have another election. Have plenty more elections until you come up with a, a, something that we can actually uh, agree on. So yeah, you know, we're, we're coming up on the second half of a uh, of the hour here. So I want to steer our attention to the article and bring the conversation towards the transgender uh, uh, agenda, which I believe will also tie into what we spoke at the start: manufactured consent. If I can just get. I just get through this this article here, gentlemen. It's only a short, brief one, but it'll set out the parameters for why the Johns Hopkins Society, the American College of Pediatricians, issued the statement. And uh, I'll share it with the with I'll share it with the uh, live chat as well, so that they can uh, have a look at the article here as well. Sorry, and that was probably a better view for all of us earlier on. Sorry, I didn't see that. But I'll bring up the article here quickly. And it's disappeared. Don't worry, it's here. I just got to pop it up. So it reads, uh, the American College of Pediatricians issued a statement condemning gender reclassification in children by stating that transgenderism in children amounts to child abuse. The American College of Pediatricians urges educators, legislators to reject all policies that condition children to accept the normal life of chemical and surgical impersonation of the opposite sex. Facts, not ideology, determine reality. Uh, and just to give out the first five points that the policy statement, human sexuality is an objective biological binary trait. XY and XX are genetic markers of health, not gen genetic markers of disorder. No one is born with a gender. Everyone is born with a biological sex, gender awareness, and the sense of oneself as a male or female is a sociological, physiological concept, concept not an objective biological one. And I'll finish on the, on the fifth, uh, I'll finish on the last few here just to cut across and I'll leave the link to the article in the description box after the show but it concludes that number seven rates of suicide are 20 times greater among adults who use cross-sex hormones and undergo sex reassignment surgery even in Sweden which is among the most LGBT affirming countries gentlemen uh, anyone out there want to take that up or sorry Dr. Jones why would the, uh, the Israeli Times reporting on that first and foremost? This is a stunning uh, reversal of, uh, of uh, what is the cutting edge of revolution in our day, that the scientists actually come out and say, no, there is an objective reality out there. This is a, and the fact that it's associated with Johns Hopkins is even more significant because 
the man who created gender came from Johns Hopkins. It was John Money. And during the 1950s, he came up with the idea of gender as a way of blurring the distinction uh, between male and female and, and, and uh, eliminating the objective characteristics of uh, the, the, the differentiation uh, uh, between the sexes. Gender uh, was a social construct. And now it is dogma in every university to say that just male and female are uh, social constructs. And since they're social constructs, we have the right to change them as we see fit. So this is a stunning reversal of that. And, uh, you know, uh, happy to see it. Keith? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm surprised to see this. I don't know if you saw a few weeks, maybe it's a few months back now, Dr. Paul McHugh, who's the, the world's leading expert in transgenderism, he did a, a number of posts on Twitter, which was just a summation of his, his years of uh, research on this. And, you know, he just laid out his views that he believes that gender dysphoria is real and that sometimes uh, sex change surgery is necessary, but it shouldn't be done before the age of 25. And, you know, nothing very controversial. He had his Twitter suspended. So, I mean, on you know, on the basis of, of hate or whatever. So what we're seeing in these movements now is like a complete separation of of morality from truth at uh, this weird kind of like hyper liberal morality now where uh you know it, it's it's all based on sentiment and if anyone tries to bring any kind of empiricism into it you're you're automatically excluded from the discussion i think is is very sinister but i i don't i don't think this will change anything i mean i I think this is a, a discussion now that's devoid of facts. And uh, if, you know, if the medic, if the medical opinions mattered on this, we wouldn't be seeing the, the child sex surgeries already. So uh, I just, I see this going full steam ahead anyway. John, your thoughts? Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, you know, we can pretty much predict that the Irish times won't publish uh, anything about this. The RT won't run uh, programs about it. Uh, this is the way it happens. Everything is elided. Everything that isn't convenient is simply forgotten. And, you know, if, if, if that doesn't work, then they will attack the people, the John Hopkins people, and, and try to destroy them. Uh, you know, that's what they do. Uh, and until such time as we stand up to them, then, you know, we're going to have to face these issues and, 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 and deal with the fallout. I mean, this has been quite extraordinary. Uh, uh, Douglas Murray, in his uh, latest book, uh, The Madness of Crowds, talks about this phenomenon, among others. And he describes it as a particular example of something that he thinks is, is part of all of this. He says it's an attempt to derange society. Uh, and that means that uh, if they can get you to say things which are manifestly untrue, as though you believe them and repeat them, and convince other people to say them and have other people saying them so that in the end everybody is saying the same things even though everybody in their heart of hearts knows that these things are true then you have won you have taken society's soul and mind and that's what they really are about you see this is fundamentally what this is all about and so i i think that you know this has been quite staggering. This is the most, uh, I suppose, extreme example of what we've been dealing with for the last two years. But it is going to be the most serious in the sense that the fallout in terms of suicide, in terms of absolute heartbreak, damage to, to people, young people, like parents being left unable to intervene as their children are destroyed in front of their eyes by this. Uh, this uh, and there are no words to describe what it is. I mean, it's beyond articulation, you know, the, the words like insane, 
crazy. These words are inadequate, completely inadequate. They don't get it. You know, we have to invent new words to convey to people who might be half listening how grave this, this crisis is now. Uh, I hope that it, this has some impact, but I doubt it. I, I think, as Keith says, you know, this is we've had this kind of stuff before, you know, where you think the cavalry has arrived, you know, but the cavalry hasn't. It, it, it's just it's passed us by. And, and unfortunately, that's uh, where we're probably going to end up now. And I mean, you see, the, the corruption of our media is completely cor complete in Ireland. Not necessarily in America to the same extent, as, I, as I've said before, and not necessarily in Britain to the same extent, but in Ireland it's total. And, uh, it's, and it's strong enough in other places to, to, to pass muster to get through. So I, 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 the fundamental problem, the, the absence that we're talking about, is deeper than simply pointing out the truth again. You know, I mean, it shouldn't be a radical thing. It shouldn't cheer us up so much to hear the truth spoken. It does, and understandably, but the absence is much deeper now. It has gone to the very bone, into the bone, and that's where we need to look now to, to begin our, our recovery project. I, I agree, and I'm going to switch over now to the second article as well, which will bring us up, and I'll, and I'll, ask, I'll direct it towards you, uh, Doc, Dr. Jones. Um, just have a look at this article. This came from The Spectator. Um, and we spoke about it in two previous broadcasts in regards to the tactics used by the transgender lobby uh, and their excuse me and their strategies that they use it said in the article in ireland denmark and norway changes to the law on legal gender recognition were put through the same time as other more popular reforms such as marriage equality legislation this provided a veil of protection particularly in ireland where marriage equality was strongly supported, but gender identity remained a more difficult issue to win public support for. And just down at, along down the bottom, it said, another technique which has been used to great effect is to limit the limitation of press coverage and exposure. In certain countries like the UK, information on legal gender recognition reforms has been misinterpreted in the mainstream media and opposition has arisen as a result. Against this background, many believe that the public campaigning has been detrimental to the progress as such of a general public as not well informed about transgender issues and therefore misinterpretation can be uh, uh, arise. And I'll, I just want to squeeze this last one in here as well. In, our, in Ireland, activists have directly lobbied individual politicians and tried to keep the press coverage to a minimum in order to avoid this issue. And that ties in, if this will work in, with, with a report yesterday and that pops up there from Colin Coyle on the Irish uh, Irish Times article. In this article, he says, and, and he was, and I presume, and I, I firmly believe that he was responding in response to not only my uh, stream, because right, this only popped out two days ago after the, the Spectator report had been doing. But let me get through this quickly, and I'll ask you, Dr. Jones, for your thoughts. An, interna an international organization that supports transgender rights has praised activists in Ireland for passing legislation under the radar by latching trans rights legislation onto a more popular legal reform, e.g. marriage equality, rather than taking the more combative public-facing approaches. I'll skip through a little bit. The report concluded that other countries should learn lessons from Ireland to avoid the type of rancorous public debate prevalent in other jurisdictions. The legislation, the Gender Recognition Act, went under the radar in Ireland because marriage equality was gaining the most focus. It found, in a way, that this was helpful 
according to the activists, because it meant that they were able to focus on persuading politicians that the change was necessary. That in tow with the useful patsies that are being brought in and shipped around, uh, that are tied in with NGOs, that are tied in with different uh, asylum seekers, that they are trying to engage to the suppression of now the ordinary citizen raising attention to this, when the politicians have already been lobbied by the NGO class and government speaking to government on these issues, like they did in the abortion referendum, where they stuck in legislation that, that refused the fetus anesthesia during the abortion procedure. Absolutely disgraceful. Sorry, Dr. Jones, I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, let's, let's take this step, uh, step back here uh, to uh, uh, pornography. Uh, now, if, if, when pornography was being debated in the legal system, uh, it was always portrayed in a kind of vacuum uh, because uh, no one knew what its effect was on a, on a wide scale. And so you would say, well, uh, the, the, uh, if we allow this, there will be a new era of freedom. And no one knew what to say. Okay, but now we do know what to say because it's actually been tried out and it failed. So we now have empirical evidence to the opposite that we can bring to bear on, on that argument. Now, that had a broad appeal. This is a very narrow appeal. If, if, if that is going to fail because of the empirical reality that come, came out about uh, what actually happens when you actually do watch this type of stuff, that's going to have a spillover effect into all of these other effects. And so I, I, don't, I, I just think there's, there's just too much pessimism here. There's too much pessimism. I mean, I mean, I listened to John for two hours at Notre Dame, and by the end of it, I was ready to join him on the ledge. We were going to, <laughs> we were going to hold hands and jump into the same show together. Uh, and then my, my secretary persuaded us not to do that, thank, thank, thankfully. But uh, here, we, here we are, we're, we're talking about how this consciousness is rising, and then we're talking as if we're the only people who know it. No, we're not the only people who know it. If, 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 gender, if, if, if identity politics failed with Hillary Clinton uh, in the election against Donald Trump, when Hillary Clinton was basing it on 50% of the population, how is this going to succeed when you're basing it on 1% of the population, which is the homosexual? And then what fragment, what fraction of 1% is this transgender weirdness? I mean, yeah. it, it, this, in a sense, they, they couldn't have done a better job in undermining their own consensus because they're making more and more extreme demands based on a smaller and smaller group of people. Well, someone's going to, it's going to, the dime is going to drop. We don't have dimes here anymore, but the dime is going to drop at a certain point and people are going to wake up. And we are on the cutting edge of that because we're the people who are explaining it to them. John, yeah. I can see you uh, jumping at the bit there. Go ahead. Yes, I, I yes, my, I agree with Michael fundamentally, and I, I I'll try to be a bit more positive. Uh, but uh, I, at the same time, I think that before the enunciation, we need the denunciation because we need for people to hear exactly affirmation of what they are actually seeing and understanding the meaning of it, and because they can't get at the moment. I mean, there are many people out there in Ireland because of the way of our corrupt media. 
And I know this from personal experience from talking to people. There are many people who think that transgenderism is men wanting to dress up as women, something like that. They have no idea what's involved. They have no idea whatsoever because the media are utterly, fundamentally corrupt. And this, this so-called report proves it. I mean, they, this is not a report. I mean, that's just the word a journalist use. This is a, a, a piece of crowing. This is a triumphalist boast. Uh, on behalf of three bodies. One is Denton, the legal firm from London. Another is uh, Thomson Reuters, a media organization, a global media organization. And the other is the trans wing of the LGBT goon squad, who are now saying to everybody, this is how we done it. We nobbled the Irish government and we nobbled the Irish press. We did three things. We got, we got in before the government was able to formulate its own attitude to transgender. We tied it to a more popular issue, which by which they mean an issue which we were already propagandized to the hilt, and we nobbled the media and told them, shut up, don't say anything until we get this through. And the media agreed. And that article by Coyle is from the Sunday Times, actually, not the Irish Times. The, that, that article is really re re revealing because there's absolutely not a hint of condemnation in that article of what he's reading, what is dealing with. It's not in any way telling the people, you've been conned, your government has been conned, your government has been stolen, your media is a joke. Uh, of course, he's not going to say that. But that's what it's actually saying. That's what the report is actually saying. And the problem, I, whereas I agree with Michael's fundamental point, you see, this is how long, this can go on for a very long time where people, because there isn't the capacity to alert them, look what you're seeing now. Look at the meaning. Listen to this. This is what it means. Look at the tone of this article. Who is this guy Coyle? What is he saying? He's saying that, yeah, this happened, but we don't care. We, we, we wanted this to happen. It's a good thing. You should be proud that we were the first country in the world to be nobbled by the LGBTQT, whatever, uh, goons. You should be proud of that, not making, not being a right-winger and being nasty about this. You, know, we should, you should do what you're told if you want to be a virtuous, modern person. That's what it's saying. That's the tone of all articles about these things in the newspapers now. And, of course, the process is this, you know, that the ordinary person, which is what I am and what we all are, but just that person in their own place, in their own home, listening to this stuff, trying to figure it out. They have two responses, maybe more, but two fundamental responses. One is in the heart of their, themselves, where they know that this is a crock. They know this is awful stuff, but they don't have yet, they're not empowered to speak because all of the instruments of conversation in our country have been commandeered, and every word they hear is to the contrary of what their heart is telling them. And our job is to tell them, your heart is not wrong. Your outrage is well-founded. Your repugnance is well-founded. Trust your repugnance with, at this, because that is the way you will save your children's lives. This is what we need to do. This is our job. And I'm greatly encouraged by Michael. I mean, we do need this to and fro conversation to take us out of our despondency and start to find our fighting spirit again. You know, it's appropriate that we were this, we met in Notre Dame where the fighting Irish are supposed to, to be now. Well, let's find them and let's set them to work. Right here, you're looking at them. Yeah. <laughs> I want to bring, I want to bring Keith in on that as well. Keith, your, uh, your thoughts on that as well, please. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd kind of fall somewhere in the middle there between the, the optimism and the, the pessimism. But when I hear Dr. Jones talk about, uh, you know, Logos rising and uh, the course of history and God's involvement of history, 
uh, kind of reminds me of a, a writer called Ken Wilbur who talks about, you know, the progress of consciousness as moving from like a pre-rational state to a rational state, but that the rational state is just a kind of intermediary state and that ultimately uh, the course of history is that we move to a sort of trans-rational state. And I kind of think when you see what's happened uh, the last few generations where uh, a lot of truths were accepted doctrinally or passed down by tradition. I, I know you talked about in your last stream the, the special kind of Irish Catholicism that was very doctrinal. And that's there's something in that that's very open to deconstruction. And the fact that that collapsed so quickly now to where we have massive irreligion in Ireland shows how open that doctrinal Catholicism is open to deconstruction and irony by the, the wrong kinds of people. So in a way, I, I wonder if you see that almost as a necessary process that because it was given to us in this sort of pre-rational way uh, and that reason and, uh, was, and deconstruction was kind of something that was avoided, that, you know, out of this vacuum now, uh, out of this kind of vacuum of decades of postmodernism and irony, that we could have a kind of uh, metamodern return to logos and that that kind of intermediary stage is necessary. So uh, it's, uh, you know, this kind of Hegelian process. I guess I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that, Dr. Jones. Yeah, I think God will sacrifice anything to bring about consciousness and he'll sacrifice good things. And whether, whether, whether that's the case or not, Ireland was defenseless. I mean, that was one of the high points of our conversation. My conversation with John was coming up. 1879 is Eterni Patris, which is Leo XIII making Thomism the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. The Church made a huge comeback here from the time of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment during the Enlightenment, the Church was on the defensive the entire time because. The, the Enlightenment is science and the church is superstition. And they made a huge comeback, okay, because suddenly uh, be belief had a rational foundation, an unshakable foundation, a metaphysical foundation. And that's what it provided. But it didn't come to Ireland because, as John pointed out, 1879 is the year of the apparitions at Knock. And what you have is this, this uh, feminine uh, devotional Catholicism and the collaboration of the priest and the glorification of the mother. I mean, God bless our mothers. God bless our mothers. Okay. But uh, we need fathers too. And the father is the rational principle here. And the rational principle deals with the world outside there and takes it on and deals with it in rational terms. And this is, uh, uh, John had to find this out the hard way through uh, his whole campaign for father's rights. So I, I think I, I don't, this is the way history works. There are these great things and suddenly they just crumble because something better has to take place. We can't go back to that, to that quiet man, Ireland. I wish I could. I wish I could go back to that. I have my, my mother to bring up my mother. She says, you always romanticize the ethnic neighborhood, you know, the Irish neighborhood where I grew up, the Irish, the ethnic neighborhoods of America's big cities. And she's right. I did. And we can't go back to them. I mean, what, what do you think? The, the Godfather was about nostalgia for Italian neighborhoods. Well, we can't go back to that. We can only go forward, and the only way forward is Logos. It's rationality. That is the only way to the future. And if God can create a, a, a nation of philosophers 
uh, as a, in Ireland, then all of this damage would have been worth it. And God would have brought good out of evil. Can I get in there? I've been reading uh, Thomas Merton's work recently. I was reading Seven Story Mountain and he talks about, you know, he had this kind of Protestant conception of God as, you know, like a personal being, kind of like a demigod. And that uh, it was this great revelation for him when he picked up a secondhand copy about medieval philosophy and he read the kind of Thomistic conception of God, you know, ipsum esse, subsistence, you know, the pure act of being. And that it was this, it made sense to him on this intuitive level when he discovered that the Catholic conception of God was this like ultimate being rather than, you know, a being among beings. And uh, I kind of recognize something myself in that because. I always had this very sort of doctrinal, sort of personalist view of God that didn't really make sense to me, you know, this kind of demigod vision of God, you know, the old man, the clouds, whatever. And then to discover the, the rich intellectual tradition there and to discover, you know, Thomism and, uh, you know, the, some of the medieval mystics like Meister Eckhart with really beautiful writing, you realize there's this great intellectual tradition. And I kind of feel like the church here doesn't ask enough of people intellectually. And I think they're actually going the wrong direction because, you know, you talk about the, the sort of matriarchal church that was here. Well, now when I see priests uh, on TV or in the public sphere, they seem to be appealing more and more to the liberal morality. And they seem to be trying to uh, justify Christianity within the liberal paradigm as in, well, you know, Jesus was the most liberal figure of all. Like Jesus was just this great hippie. And they, uh, Merton also had said in a, a separate work how, you know, love is willing the good of another, and that love separated from uh, a notion of good and evil, which is tied to truth, uh, lo that love is hatred because you're not willing like a, a, a good for the other person that's based in a, an objective conception of the truth. And it seems like the church here is sort of falling into that trap of liberalism, of separating, you know, the economic sphere, the moral sphere, the political sphere. You know, talked about how silent they were on economics earlier and how they allowed this social libertinism to thrive. And uh, I think that's I think that's a big mistake on behalf of the church. I mean, look at the audience Dr. Jones is getting. Look at the audience someone like Jordan Pearson is getting because they ask something of people. They, you know, they give them uh, something meaty intellectually and uh, talk about moral responsibilities. And it seems that the church is going down this direction of sort of a airy fairy uh, liberal liberal religion. Yeah, Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate. So it's it's more than just geometry. It is geometry, but it's more than just geometry. It's the geometry of history. It's geometry in motion. And I've, I've, I mean, part of the reason I wrote this book is I'm traveling all around the world. And, you know, I'm in India and Iran and, and South America. And uh, everybody's engaged in a conversation now. We're all engaged on the Internet. I had a, a, a tremendous conversation with an Iranian woman over months simply about Logos. So I'm, uh, this is the moment. We're missing the moment. We're part of the moment and we're missing it because we're so down because of all, all of the bad stuff that it's passing away. I'm saying that's not going to last. It's not going to last. And and now we've got the ability to make a conversation throughout the world and say, this is mandatory. This isn't, this isn't a matter of choice here. This is an objective reality. This is who we are. We are creatures of rationality. And if, if you, you have a, a duty to be rational in every single thing you're doing, 
but especially in your actions, because that's practical reason. That's morality. And this is not negotiable anymore. Now we know this, and you've got all of the media and all this big circus, but when it comes down to a fundamental question, this is mandatory. And, and if you can explain to me why it's not, then try, but I think I can explain to you why it is. And that notion is spreading. It's not simply the whim of the rich and the powerful anymore. We went through this before, before. Thrasymachus said to Plato, justice is the opinion of the powerful. And the only reason we know who Thrasymachus is is because Plato wrote about him. Plato was a student of Socrates, and he said, no, there are objective realities out there, and that's what it means to be a human being, and that's what we're saying right now, and that is going to triumph over all the media circus. You can bank on it. John, your thoughts? Yes, uh, I... I, I... I, I hope that's right, and I, 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 I believe what, what Michael says. Um, but I suppose, you know, when we approach these questions, we go to our experience, and we try to filter events up to now through our rationality and try and figure out what's happened and where are we going and why are we going there and why is this happening. And, probably, you know, as I keep saying, that there has never been a more confusing time in my lifetime. You know, there's, you know, you can see the madness increase on a day-to-day -day basis. You can literally smell it in the air, the madness in Ireland now. You know how much madder today is than, than yesterday. You feel that, that sense. And uh, I, I, you know, therefore, I look and look and look. Where is this, where is this going to come from? Where is the, the, uh, um, the break going to come from? Uh, is there a tipping point when consciousness starts to grow uh, and, and we reach a point where it's uh, uh, unstoppable? What happens then? Does everything disintegrate and we all end up uh, uh, having to rebuild the twin towers of our civilization again? Or is there an intermediary point? Can we actually prevent this in any way? Can we stop it destroying everything? Because that's that's kind of important. You know, I mean, you can have logos rising, you can have consciousness rising, but in between you might have Nazism, you might have something like this, uh, you might have death camps, you know, uh, so that was, is imminently to be avoided if possible. And so it's a question of how do we intervene in this? You know, what do we do? What is the main thing we do? Is it bearing witness? Is it, I think for me, it's, it's having the courage to speak, not necessarily to provide answers, but simply to be seen speaking, to be heard speaking, so that other people can say, well, he's speaking and he's not dead yet. They haven't got him. He's not in jail, not yet. Uh, I could do that. I could speak like that, maybe a little bit in a while. I'll try it. That's what we need. I think that's the only function I, I fulfill in the world right now, is, is to kind of be that person who, one of those people who, who people might hear and say, as I do meet people in the street now saying, you're very brave, I say, I am not brave. I'm a total coward. I'm totally, uh, I am reckless, but I'm not brave. Uh, and and uh, uh, that's what I think we can do. I, I don't know if that's what Michael would, would tell us to, 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 to keep doing. Or will this happen? I don't know. See, God, I think, needs us to make this happen. I've always believed that, that God, for whatever reasons, whether it's his own choice or 
some situation. I don't know. But he doesn't necessarily, you know, he doesn't strike people down. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't do magic. He works through us. He takes what you have. There's a the parable of the, the people are hungry and they come to Jesus Christ and they say the people need food. And what did Jesus Christ say? He said, well, what do you have? Well, we have uh, three fish and seven barley loaves. He said, well, let's take that. That's the way God works. I mean, Jesus Christ could have made that without any any of, uh, effort on his own part. But that's yeah. not the way he works in human history. He takes your pitiful little amount of fish and barley loaves and he multiplies it. Now, that should give us hope, I think. Yes. 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 I think, I think that's right. I think, but for us, I think the thing is, Every day that we get up, we summon up in ourselves as much bottle, as much courage as we can scrape together on any given day to do whatever it is that we need to do on that day to put an end to this, to put an end to the madness and allow that logos to breathe in our civilization again. The thing is as well, I, I find anyway, I'm sure you probably agree, John, like when you talk to people, I mean, if you're to believe the internet and you're to believe the media and the mainstream media, you'd think that you were you had the views of a complete pariah and that no right-minded person on the street did all think you're a monster. But I mean, my experience of talking to ordinary people is they're almost always in complete agreement with me on every issue. Yeah. And uh, I have yet to meet someone that thinks it's okay to uh, mutilate the genitals of a seven-year-old. So you know the question is why don't more people speak out and it, they're all under this belief that's fed to them by the media that this is the accepted belief now but i mean under the surface of it the cracks are there and the fact is that 99 percent of people viscerally oppose this they just don't have the they don't have the the right vocabulary yet or they don't have the confidence to assert it so that's why i think it's so important for the first people that speak out against it you know to to give courage to those people that know intimately that's wrong. Yes, I think so. I think, you know, to be in a situation in the future of a parent who looks at their 12, 13-year-old child, you know, beautiful child, taken into this uh, path which in which in on which they will be destroyed. I mean, and knowing they can't do anything. I mean, we fought uh, in 2012, before the last two, before the, the gay marriage referendum, before the abortion referendum, we fought another referendum. Uh, which we also lost more, very marginally uh, about what are called children's rights. And uh, that we said, this is not about children's rights. This is transferring the rights of children, of parents to the state. And that's what happened. So that it was already part of a plan that we didn't even then, you know, seven years ago, suspect that in, this would actually one day serve to prevent a parent speaking out to veto the destruction of by that child of him or herself. I, I remember that referendum and I remember not understanding how anyone could be on the no side because at that time I couldn't conceive that we could get to a state where, you know, the state would be forcing parents to allow the genital mutilation of their children. So, yeah, but now you see it. Yeah. Yeah, we see. But, but 
we didn't see it at that. This was not on our, our menu of, of arguments no. at the time. It, it was nowhere in plain sight. Our arguments were fundamental principles that the parents had the right to decide in relation to their children, that the point of parenting was to rear your children and to take care of them while they were unable to make major decisions for themselves and to help them to, to, to live and learn how to make those decisions. And this referendum took all of those things out of the hands of parents and gave them to state authorities, to judges and social workers and so on. It was that, my instinct on that was why I, I opposed it, because I had seen social workers up close in my own life and I was not impressed by what I saw and I didn't want these people being the arbiters of anything in our civilization. So. So I happened to be right on that issue in a way that I didn't even, I had no, I didn't have a dream about it. I couldn't foresee it in any way whatsoever. I'd be quite honest. Gentlemen, whereas we're coming up now to a, the start of a second era, and I just, I, I kind of want to wind it down and bring it in by taking a few questions from the live chat. We have a couple of super chats directed at various different people. So live chat, if you want to answer your, answer your questions though, but top of the, top of the first one here is, um from johnny gray and let me see if i can i'll just bring his question up and it's not not necessarily a question directed at anyone but i just want to show up because it's a generous super chat after watching james corbett's big oil videos part two featuring elite fixation with eugenics and i think we talked about that earlier john as well i think what we see today is an elite plan to empower the easily corrupted to live out their degeneracy and eliminate themselves from the gene pool and a second question also was from uh, Tabby Callahan who asked, is there, is there, I, I don't have it there, but is there a situation, there it is there now, and that's directed, this is directed at you, John. Uh, would you ask him, Michael Jones, about the idea, sorry, I, I do, Dr. Jones, of Irish Catholicism divorced from the Vatican and a new church and a new beginning and a new rebirth? And this final Snapchat, if you can remember, was for you, John, is uh, uh, Christopher John Waters, is our constitution salvageable? Or do we need a complete reset with a new iron-clad constitution which cannot be diluted in a generation uh, by the court or an malleable public? I'll let that one slide to you first, John, if you can read that there. Uh, do you want me to answer that one first about the constitution? Yeah, John, I'll bring up the other two. Go ahead. Okay, well, um, one would like to think that that was possible but I, I don't believe it is because you can see now the kind of conversations that we're capable of having uh, and and uh, you know I don't think anything that almost anything in history that was successful if you think of the way that you know the Allies won the Second World War I think it wouldn't be possible now because of the internet because the level of scrutiny that would be applied to those people to like Churchill and uh, would be so intense that they wouldn't be able to function in the way they functioned in order to do what they did and I think in the same way, you couldn't do this now. I mean, to, to formulate a constitution such as, as was formulated under the stewardship of Emma de Valera in, in, in the mid-30s requires deep philosophical reflection. It requires massive consultation with sane and wise people, not with you know, a bunch of hand-picked uh, hand uh, you know, citizens who go into a room and are then bullied into taking a particular line, which is what happened with the Citizens' Assembly and the, citizens, the Constitutional Convention before it. So it's almost impossible now uh, to ha have a process by which you could arrive at a philosophical view of reality which would reflect real human experience through time as opposed to the whims of people at any particular moment. So I, I would say, well, the best we can do is salvage the Constitution we have. 
Uh, and the first thing we need to do, if we if 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 we had a sane government one day, not to in the not too distant future, is to go back again, Articles 40 to 44, and restore them to their original form, to remove the the referendum, the amendments that were placed on them in the last uh, uh, seven years, and and they start from there then to try to because that constitution was my father uh, was a. Uh, a Fine Gaelor, you know, he was a common Gaelor and, and he was a pro-treaty. He was Michael Collins' man. And uh, he hated De Valera with a passion. He regarded uh, uh, De Valera as the devil, kind of. Uh, not not too metaphorically, quite literally almost. And and but he always said that the one great thing, and I've heard him I heard him say this hundreds of times to people who were saying things about De Valera, the constitution was the finest piece of work he ever did. It is such a beautiful document and such a so profound insofar as human nature and the human experience was concerned that it, it, it knew things. It knew things that nobody else, nobody, no individual knew. That was the thing about the Constitution. It was wise beyond measure. It still is to some extent, although it's so badly diluted now by all these appalling uh, amendments. I mean, and, and not just appalling, obscene amendments. So, but I mean, if, if it were to me, yeah, we could. If we had a free hand. If we had a free hand on Monday morning to start to salvage the constitution, it could still be done. Uh, but you know, they're they're not stopped. You know, they they have other plans. Euthanasia is coming along the line. They keep telling us these things. You can see them in the papers. Or I mean, I don't read the papers, but I see headlines coming through. There was one last week saying, "Oh, it's euthanasia is coming up." Right? We have to, uh, I think, grasp the nettle. I mean, that was the the favorite journalistic cliche uh, of euthanasia. Well, we knew that was coming. Because it's what it's almost 2020, isn't it? So you know we've got to have something to 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 to, to, to signpost our 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 milestone, our progress. Uh, we can't rest with just killing babies. We have to kill older people now, and so that's the kind of country we have. So we can that's stop, but we need sane people. And the problem is politics at the moment doesn't attract sane people. They run away from it, and for obvious reasons. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's under charge the case. I think that the bell, the pendulum is swinging in the opposite direction. I noticed more and more uh, stronger candidates coming out and speaking out. But I want to turn the the second question over to you, Dr. Jones, which was, can the Irish Catholics separate from the Vatican? Bobby Callaghan asked the question, and he also said, I think a new Irish Catholicism separate from the Vatican is the way to combat this communist takeover, rebuild our nation, starting with community and logos of class classical. Catholic principles. Your thought, Dr. Jones? Yes, the Irish Catholics can separate from the Vatican. This is known as the Reformation. England did it, uh, and it was a disaster for England. So if you're asking me, should Ireland separate, the answer is no. The Catholic Church is based on Rome. Rome as the primus inter pares. Rome has always been the center of the church. and it has to remain the center of the church if the Catholic church wants to have any type of unity. We are going through bad times now. Everybody knows that uh, across the board, both within the church and outside of the church, but that does not change the fact or uh, uh, the principle of the church. And this church is founded on Peter. Uh, And if you don't believe that, go to Rome and there's a big basilica there and there are letters that are about seven feet high, and it says, uh, Tu es Petrus et supra hanc Petram edificabo ecclesiam meam. 
you are Peter and upon this church uh, rock, I will build my church. And if you go straight down from there, you'll find a little niche in a wall way down below the street level. And that's where Peter's bones were found uh, not too long ago. So the answer here is uh, don't jump out of the ship simply because there's a storm. This is another parable. Okay, Jesus Christ uh, is asleep in the back of the boat. Whenever there's a storm, it se always seems that Jesus Christ is asleep. And so the, it's getting worse and worse. And finally, the apostles go to him and says, don't you care that we're all going to die? And he wakes up and calms the storm. And he says, where's your faith? Well, we're going through a real severe storm right now. And the message of that parable is it may be bad in the boat, but if you jump out of the boat, it's instant death. Now, every church father was in agreement that the boat here symbolizes the church. That is the church. And so there is no point in making some type of radical jumping of ship just because the situation is bad right now. This will pass. It always has. It always will. Fantastic. Gentlemen, I'm going to round it up there now. And I just want to just want you both or all three of you just letting people know what you're up to, uh, what books you're currently writing. Keith, I know you're only just starting out on this journey of inquiry. Where can people find you? What are you up to next? And what's your plan? And then I'll go to Dr. Jones and Mr. Waters to finish off. Uh, yeah, Keith Woods on YouTube. Just follow me there. I'm, uh, I'm sticking out to YouTube for now. It's been growing quite a bit uh, the last few weeks and months. So I'm just going to push on with that. Great stuff. Uh, John, your book, The Bad Road, still available? It's still available. Yeah. Road. It's still available. I don't know if it's available in the shops. That was always a problem, you know, because, you know, the, 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 the book trade is as corrupt in Ireland as everything else. Uh, but uh, I have, I'm, I'm supposed to be working on another book. Uh, it's, it's almost finished, but I, because I've been ill, I haven't been able to get someone up the levels of necessary levels of concentration to finish it. So I'm hoping to do that next year. And it's going to be published by uh, the University of Notre Dame Press, I think. And it's, it's, kind of, it's about a little bit about this. It's about how, how, how faith in God ceased to seem like a reasonable proposition in our culture and, and how we, what we might do about that. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, and it's about Ireland as well as the, as the kind of the, 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 the laboratory example. Uh, I, I write for First Things uh, uh, pretty regularly these days, and people can find that easily online. And uh, um, I'm also hoping that next year I'm, I'm giving some thought to, to becoming a little bit more technologically involved in the world again, and to leave my Luddite past behind, and actually take these people on with their own weapons and see how. Don't that mention goes. the title just yet. Don't mention no, the title. No, of course not. No, uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, so uh, those who thought I was dead, uh, my death has been grossly exaggerated and uh, I am, I am uh, 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 not quite dead. Yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Jones, you're there. you have a new book coming out on your long tradition of huge books. There's a whole list and litany of Dr. Yes. Jones's work yes. available on Amazon and on his website, culturewars.com. Logos Rising is your latest book. Please tell yes. us about that. Logos Rising, uh, a history of ultimate reality. It's, it's only 800 pages. So we're thinking of calling it a short history of ultimate reality. Uh, but we, we are, uh, we, we, as I said before, uh, we hang by a thread here on the internet. Uh, tomorrow, uh, I've all, everyone's saying there's going to be a big purge on YouTube. Uh, we may uh, 
we may all lose our YouTube channels. Uh, I may lose mine, uh, which means that we need to establish secure channels of communication uh, to bypass psychological warfare, which is the prohibition of communication among subject peoples. So go to culturewars.com, uh, buy something, get on our list, and then we can continue to communicate even if uh, the ADL has its way and takes everybody down. Fantastic, gentlemen. Thank you all so very much uh, for joining me on this uh, unique broadcast. And I want to ask each and every one of you, can we, uh, can we please commit to doing this stream conversation again? We'll have the John Waters, we'll have the good Dr. Jones back again when it's available, and we'll have our young starlet here in Ireland, young Mr. Master Keith Woods. Phenomenal minds. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you all for joining us on this great conversation. If you're of a mind, please do. Don't forget to visit uh, the Gran Torino website, worldwide web, grantorino.ie. Plenty of articles and our online store is there. And should you choose, if you would like, please stick a, a, a couple of quid in the tank for the Gran Torino. Or if you look in the pin section down below, you might throw a few quid into the tip jar for the Gran Torino and help keep this platform going so that we can indulge and bring these great guests to you and many uh, uh, of our other things. So if you're new to the show or you're just joining us as well, please don't forget, press the like button, press the subscription button and the bell, and you'll be reminded of these and other conversations and streams on the Grand Torino. Gentlemen, fairly well. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, everybody. <laughs>